1: If I have the three to five people I spend the most time with, people who support me, who challenge me, who are great role models, and if I have wellness practices in mind, body, finance, and spirit, then I'm going to actually live a really good life, and I'm going to be well-equipped to deal with the ups and downs that life inevitably will bring us. (laughs)
0: Hello again and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, mental health is something that many of us take for granted. When we think about living long and healthy, it's the physical aspect of human longevity that we tend to focus on. But for many people, depression can be every bit as debilitating as diseases linked to the effects of a bad diet or a lack of exercise. Indeed, these factors also play an important role in our mental health, along with many other factors. And depression can affect anyone, from high-profile athletes to veterans returning from war zones to a member of the family that you would never think of as struggling with his or her Mental health. Well, I'm joined by Josh Goberg, who is the executive director of the Boulder Crest Institute, which is a privately funded wellness center for veterans with mental health issues. Josh, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Boulder Crest. Uh, I want to talk about you and, and your journey to this point in your life. But tell me a little bit more about Boulder Crest. Sure. So
1: Boulder Crest it was started in September 2013 uh, with a retreat facility in Virginia called Boulder Crest Retreat, Virginia. And after operating there for a couple of years, it became very clear that uh, the innovation that we were engaged in, specifically related to topics like PTSD and anxiety and depression for not just combat veterans but their family members, uh, needed to be expanded. And so uh, last year we opened up uh, Boulder Crest Retreat in Arizona as well. And in January we launched the Bouldercrest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth to really bring what we've learned and what we understand to the wider world. And one of the things that Ken Falk is our founder and I kept noticing – is that every time we went to a meeting to raise awareness, raise funds, civilians would grab us on the arm and they would say, can, can I talk to you for a minute in private? And they would start to unload some of these deeper memories they had, deeper struggles that they had, and asked if we could do something for them or some member in their family. And so Ken and I set about last year to write a book, which is called Struggle Well, coming out in May, to address uh, as best we could without kind of being there with folks what we've learned and how people can implement it in their own life because it's a topic we care deeply about is it's kind of human suffering and struggle that that doesn't have to exist the way it, the way it does.
0: Yeah, it is a huge issue and the facilities that exist and and things are improving they really only touch the surface don't they in terms of helping people.
1: They do and they, and they focus so much on Uh, what I would call coping with the diminished version of yourself or your symptoms. And so they try to help you feel less bad, but don't enable you to actually understand how to take those struggles, which we know from like human history and from the book of Job onward. Uh, that those struggles can actually create a life that's better. And I think that lack of focus and really just focusing on how to make people feel less uncomfortable is really misses the point. And, and we see that with medication and the treatments we do. They're short, short duration, and they're not sustained. And so you often leave people trapped in this version where their life feels like it's a fraction of what it used to be. And I'm firmly of the belief that, you know, we have two needs as humans. One is to grow and the other is to contribute, and that, that we always have those needs no matter what age we're at. Uh, That Those are really important. And so part of what we hope to inject into the world and what Ken and I devoted our life to is, is enabling people to find pathways to growth and contribution that allowed them to feel like their life is worth living. Because while it's great to live a long life, uh, it's more important to live a meaningful one.
0: Well, exactly. And mental health is pivotal to that. And uh, I refer to the fact that people, when we consider longevity and living long and, and well, you might think of your physical health, your ability to, to walk and to run or to work out or to play with your children. It's sometimes, or maybe oftentimes, it's it's the mental health side of things that gets ignored? Because I think a lot of times people just don't understand it.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the in, in my own personal journey, my own personal struggle, uh, I had crippling stomach ailments for some period of time. And we went through all the physiological tests to determine what was wrong. And the truth is, it was all related to stress, anxiety, and depression. And so the impact of mental health challenges on our physical well-being is profound and is well-known. And, and I think one of the things we have to do is really take a comprehensive look because it's great to do exercise. It's great to engage your body. It's great to, as my dad would say, uh, you know, not wake up and feel your age is really the goal. And there's so much more in life that uh, no matter what your situation is, and when we see folks who I just spent last week with, with Dave Riley, who's a quadruple amputee, right, he doesn't have the facilities that a lot of other people have, and he lives a very fulfilling life. And so the body isn't the uh, – the only thing, and and there's an expression that you know we get attached to the light bulb, and what we should focus on is
0: the light. So tell me about your experiences, because you kind of referred to it there that you have had your own issues, and and you have emerged. I think it's probably fair to say a, a better person, a person who understands perhaps what your problems were. But let's go back to the beginning and explain. What happened to you? Sure. So
1: I I, I liked to, I grew up as a, what I sometimes call an indoor Jew. So somebody who was trained to be smart, trained to use my mind, uh, not so much be strong, but to, but you know, to accomplish, to achieve a profession. And and I did that well. And I and I was successful in business. I graduated from college in 01 and then I went to work at two multinational companies around the globe for the better part of twelve years. And in two thousand and eleven I started to feel quakes in my own life. And I started to reflect on what it was that I was doing. You know, I was married at the time. I had kind of was living a life where what I was chasing was uh, what I would call money, power, and respect. That that's what my goal was in life.
0: And you worked uh, in communications.
1: I worked in communications, advertising, and marketing at, at ExxonMobil and at, at British American Tobacco before that. And I started to reflect, and and part of that reflection was just going and talking to people. So I probably met about 100 people and asked them how they got to where they were. And I heard the most amazing stories of people bumping their heads, you know, taking curvy routes and finding a life that they were not just proud of but that they felt inspired to live. And I, I knew that I wanted that. But I didn't know how to get it. And so over the course of about a year, I really started to deconstruct my life. I got divorced, uh, which is obviously incredibly painful. And I didn't have kids, which made it a little easier. Um, I switched careers. I changed hobbies. I changed friends. And I I began to try to resurrect a life that made sense to me and that was attuned to what was true for me. Because like I said, I, I felt like I was living a Truman Show existence. Like someone said, here's your life. Live it. Don't complain. Just figure it out. And
0: the Truman Show being the Jim Carrey movie yep. of this guy living in a, a clinical kind of world.
1: Yep, and he and he's the only real person. Everyone else is an actor, and it just felt very disingenuous. And so uh, there was a lot that was liberating about that experience, and there was also incredible, incredible fear, and, and and I was terrified because I didn't know how to get to where I wanted to go, and I didn't know who could help me get there. And uh, I worked for a guy at that time uh, named Mort, and Mort had lost his son to to, to I don't know if it was suicide or drug or alcohol, but at my age. And he looked at me and he said, you're not, you're not doing okay. And he said, and that's okay. And uh, I shared a copy of a book called Man's Search for Meaning with Me, which is very pivotal by Viktor Frankl. And I, because at this time, I'm, I'm suicidal. I got panic attacks. I have severe anxiety and depression. And side note, you wouldn't really know that when I was at work. Right? I was high-functioning in spite of all of that.
0: You were able to compartmentalize things in your life, your, your issues, your personal issues, and your professional life?
1: I was uh, I was a professional at wearing the mask, and I was a professional at pretending. And I'd, I'd done it for so long that I didn't really know any other way. I went to two therapists. I was given medication for anxiety and depression and sleep, and I just found that I felt like I was kind of trapped and was stuck. And, and I did have a lot of moments when I thought it might be better to start over, whatever that meant, than it would be to try to figure it out. Because I just, I I was losing patience with my ability to figure things out.
0: And Did did you have any ideas? Did you, at the back of your mind, think you knew what the problem was? Or were you simply totally confused by this avalanche of issues that you were facing?
1: I I had no idea. I mean, the way I would describe it, I felt like I was in an impenetrable fog. And I had no idea which way to walk. And I don't have a sense of direction to begin with. So I literally had no idea which way to go. And... I would try different things, but but the things that are so available to us when we struggle—drugs, alcohol, sex, violence—all of these things that are so almost socially acceptable ways of of dealing with our pain and agony—and and those were the things that I turned to, and uh, and I found them lacking. You know, like you'd feel good for a minute, and then the next day when you're hungover, you just it, it, it loses its luster. And in the process of all of this, I had one inclination, and the inclination was that maybe my life uh, would be better if it wasn't so selfish, if I actually looked to serve somebody else. And a week later, I was in Los Angeles uh, and I was sitting at a table with a brother and my brother and a friend of his, and she worked with athletes and celebrities to see how she could help support their philanthropic goals. And she asked me when I got back to Dallas, if I would meet with a client who was on uh, the Cowboys and his wife who had lost her brother in Afghanistan. And I said, of course. And so the next week I met with them for lunch and they started to share their story and what they wanted to do in terms of helping veterans and leveraging sports to do so. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about this. I've grown up, uh, both my grandfathers were stateside during World War II. I have no connection to the military. I don't understand the issues, but I want to understand them. And they gave me like tons of reading to do. So I started reading and what I circled around was this topic of PTSD and anxiety and depression. And I would read suicide notes. I remember there's a New York Times article uh, with some of the excerpts from those notes. And I was like, I could have written that right? I actually directly connected to that. And as fate has it, you know, it was when one door opens, more open. And so I ended up, you know, meeting people on planes and having conversations. And it just happened to be that every person I met that was new was interested in veterans' stuff.
0: And was this the first time, in a sense, that the light bulb had gone on for you and that you thought, oh, well, I'm not alone. I, I, I can understand. I, I feel the same way as as people are writing about themselves and that there are other people in my position.
1: Absolutely, it was. It was certainly the first time I felt like um, there was a universality to what I was experiencing, and uh, it was. The, it was the first time in a sustained way. I think I felt like there was a flame burning that was directed at something, and and I just kept following it, and and I found myself um, standing in front of a, a man named Dusty, who's 6'4", Dusty uh, Dusty's now he's sixty four years old. And he's a – Dusty was a 82nd Airborne guy, and I call him a modern-day Spartan, just a huge man with a white goatee. And we were talking, and, and he asked me why I had come to this program that I was at. And I said, you know, I came to help and I came to observe a program that combat veterans were going to go through. And, and Dusty looked at me after we talked for a while, and he said, you know, you seem like a really well-meaning young man. A young man. There's a lot of people who want to help who – are are really after something else, he he said, this seems genuine. He said, but you're going to do one thing first before you help anybody else. And uh, he used more salty language, but let's just say he leaned into my face and said, you're going to fix yourself first. And I said, how do I do that? And he said, you be quiet and listen to what I say.
0: Did did he say that without you telling him what your problems were? How did he figure it out?
1: I mean, and that's part of the intuitive... Uh, and empathetic nature of 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 combat veterans and folks with military experience is that they are the best people readers you've ever met. And their BS detector is very significant. And so he knew, he knew that that I was lost. Um, and he also saw in me something good, right? It wasn't just that, that he was concerned about my well-being. He also thought like, okay, this guy is here for the right reasons. He's just lost. And so I had the opportunity to to learn wellness practices and and to be able to understand how it was that I created a life that felt so disingenuous, and I think most importantly to me, um, I never felt like I was part of anything. So I grew up, like I said, as a, as a Jewish kid, but I was never connected to that community. Uh, I went to college and had a small group of friends, but didn't really fit in with any group of people. I always found myself kind of the. The person who could navigate any group of people but who wasn't really a part of any of those. And when I found my way into this world of, of the military and veteran community, it was real brotherhood. It was real commitment. It was real integrity. It was when someone said they had your back, they meant it. And so for me, uh, I think the story that gets told of people go to war and come home and they're messed up, uh, that we failed to understand just how profound the experience of the military is and not just training people in how to be really effective at doing things under duress. But actually in how to be really, really good human beings and what it means at the level of the intangibles of character-based attributes um, that they bring to the table. And that's what they've taught me. They've taught me in the course of working with them over the last four years how to be a man, how to be a leader, how to be kind, how to be a servant, how to be humble, uh, how to work together with other people to pursue a common goal. And that's the part for me that drives me is is I know – that in our work and the reason we focus on combat veterans is we believe that not only are they different we believe that they their experience uh, in in hell if you will on earth it actually gives them wisdom that the rest of us desperately need
0: so from that point that this guy who you'd never met before came very close to your face and said you're going to sort yourself out first what did you do next
1: uh, i listened I, I i actually closed my mouth and i listened and and ironically because i love to talk and uh, not long after that I would I would come to meet Ken Falk who had started Boulder Crest in Virginia which was the first wellness facility that was privately funded focused on combat veterans and their families and when I met Ken I had laryngitis and I couldn't talk and so I had to listen and we talked he talked for a while and and I got to listen and I got to learn. And, and subsequent to that, we ended up getting together in Virginia and we probably spent, I think it was like eight hours together. We had three Tic Tacs, two glasses of water and one bathroom break and just laid out what we believed, which is, you know, in the world of nonprofits, it's it's a fulfilling and wonderful thing to be able to change one life. That's cool to get to do. But what Ken and I were after and what we viewed these issues of anxiety, depression, mental health writ large were issues that were systemic and that there was a solution that wasn't being considered. And we're both contrarians. We don't believe in like conventional wisdom. We kind of have to figure out stuff for ourselves. And that's what we kind of agreed. It was the day after Christmas in 2013 was like, there's a way to solve these problems in a meaningful way. And in many ways, it, it starts with training people to be able to understand uh, how to take the worst times that we have in our life and use them to create strength and growth and possibility. And, and that's Ken's story. Lost his mom when he was seven. It's my story. In a very different way, you know, Ken was disarming bombs and, and doing crazy things, jumping out of planes, diving under the deepest seas. And I was just trying to figure it out in corporate America. And and ironically, what's amazing and beautiful about it is, you know, that connection that occurs at where, where our life is most universal is, is in the space where we struggle. That's the most human that we are is when we struggle. And so whatever your age is, whatever your situation is, I think there's some universal truths that can guide the journey from what we would say is from struggle to strength. Whether that's deep struggle, whether it's temporary, whether, whatever the issue is, is how do you actually take advantage of, of that and use it to teach you lessons that you can continue to grow and learn from? And, and I've been fortunate in my life to have incredible mentors, including my grandmother who we lost last year at 102, who remind me that you never get to stop growing. And more importantly, you never get to stop making choices. You're never stuck if you don't want to be.
0: And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. So to what extent did you from that point focus only on yourself rather than embracing other people and trying to help others as you do now? How long was it just me and and what results did you see from that?
1: And it's a great question because you know one of the things I, – I, we like to think that there's two types of people in the world. There are people who are self-focused and then there are people who are others-focused. And the issue we have with a lot of our veteran friends is they're others-focused. And they don't actually – they'll give you everything they have and end up with nothing because that's the way they are. And, and they lived in a world where someone else was going to do that for them. And I think for me, what I was able to do was I, I really took the time I needed – uh, to build the practices in my life, so you know, I wake up every morning and I meditate. I engage in physical activity or exercise of some kind. I tend to read or journal, uh, and then I start my day. And so, what I started to do is build a routine that worked for me, and and start to build a community. The other thing I've always been is incredibly curious, uh, passionately curious. And so, um, once I had my experience and this profound epiphany, which was like by the end of this week I had spent with these veterans, I was like, holy cow. Some, something was like, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. And I was like, whoa. Like, I don't know where it came from. But that had never happened to me. But it was this clear clarity of, like, this is what you're meant to do, is I, I worked to reverse engineer my experience and my life and then to listen to other people and understand where those commonalities were. Because for me, being committed to solving these problems was we can't solve a problem we don't understand. And I think far too often when it comes to mental health, we're shooting at symptoms, but that's, those are – symptoms are literally symptoms. There's a root cause that the symptoms emanate from, and we don't look at that. And so I really spent probably six months, and I was sleeping on couches and, and eating kind bars that friends were giving me because I didn't have any money, to actually think and reflect and listen and understand why is nature so powerful? Why is meditation so powerful? Why is it important we look at how we were raised and the impact that has on us no matter how old we are or young and all of those sorts of things? But, I, but every day started with like me time. And then whatever I needed to give to the world, and that for the past four-plus years has been a constant, is is the first hour or two of my day is mine. And however early that means I have to get up to do the things I need to do to be the best version of myself, I then get to bring that to the world. And so it starts with me, and then it goes into the world and into others. But I, I think that balance is, is critical uh, because if you – Focus just on yourself, right? You can go into a cave and just do self-care stuff, um, but you miss out on the beauty of life, the connection, the opportunities. And then on the other hand, if you're just taking care of other people, we see it time and time again, uh, diminishing returns. Uh, Even in the mental health world, we see it with what they call visceral trauma or secondary PTSD is if you're not healthy and strong and you're sitting with people who are telling you really hard stuff, you're going to begin to diminish in your effectiveness. And that's true for us as friends, professionals. We have to, 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 to have the keys to our own kingdom and know what is it I need in my life to be the person I want to be and understand that at times, you know, that I'm going to need to build a reservoir of strength that's going to be drawn upon in in really hard times. And that's what I felt has worked for me. And I, and I think I speak for Ken as well in saying it's worked for him too.
0: Let's just focus on that me time because I know that will resonate with a lot of people that, that listen to this podcast and, and are interested in, in lifestyles and, and managing our own mm-hmm. daily lives, which are... F- increasingly frenetic these days, just the, the life, the fast-moving life that we all – or lives that we all lead. How do you manage that me time and make sure that it always happens?
1: So meditation for me is was one of the major things. And so I practice transcendental meditation, which is one of the forms of meditation, and it's 20 minutes twice a day. And so – for me, wherever I am, so if I have a flight at 6 a.m. and I have to get up at 3 so I can make sure I can meditate and get to the airport on time, I'll do that. And and so I think for me, it's it's making sure that I recognize the things that I need to do in my life and do them no matter what. And, and recently, so I've been traveling a lot because we opened our facility in Arizona, and I have a, a Peloton, a spin bike in my house. I have a gym next door, so it's very easy. But when I'm on the road, it's not and so I talked to a friend who is a workout junkie, and he sent me two workouts that you can do in like the space of a closet, like in a hotel room. And so I started doing those as an example. So for me, it's about identifying, you know, for us, the way we think about me is mind, body, and finance. Those are the three areas of life that seem to need to be right in order to uh, allow you to make the maximum contribution in life. The, what I would call the how. Those are the how to being effective at life. And so when it comes to the mind, those are things like journaling, reading, you know, spending quiet time, meditation, art, things along those lines. Then when you get to body, it's obviously moving. And I know you've, you guys have talked a lot about that on the podcast about the importance of just moving your body in different ways and whatever's feasible. And then the finance part is important because that's the part that tends to impact our stress levels the most. And, and we think of finance in three ways. It's, it's how do you live, which is your quality of life. Where do you live? Just geography. I mean, there's, you know, seasonal affective disorder, all these things. And then there's how much do you have to live on? Have you uh, created a life for yourself where you actually have the cash you need to know that that's not going to be a stressor? And and those are the three areas for us where me time is meaningful. And then in the middle of our wellness triangle is, is the spirit, which we think of as relationships to others from your spouse, significant other children, all the way up to a higher power if that's in your wheelhouse to your character, and then your sense of service to others. And that's how we think about it. So for me, uh, one of the things I struggled with, I did not have a framework. Right, I was like, okay, I don't want to be this way. And so I had a guy who was like, hey, why don't you come take a spin class? And I was like, I don't want to do that, but everything I want to do is not working. So I'm going to do the things I don't want to do. So I went. And so you know, someone invited me into that world, which has become something I love now. And I think that to me, having a framework to understand, okay, if I have the three to five people I spend the most time with, are people who support me, who challenge me, who are great role models. And if I have wellness practices in my body, finance, and, uh, and spirit, then I'm going to actually live a really good life, and I'm going to be well-equipped to deal with the ups and downs that life inevitably will bring us uh, in our, in our, in our situations. So
0: It's interesting the, the, how you describe the start of your day, because I know the excuse, if you want to call it that, for a lot of people, of, of falling off the wagon, of not doing some of these things, is simply the things that they have to do during the day, catch the flight, catch the bus, catch the train for an early meeting. Oh, well, I'll just skip things that day. But you purposefully get up earlier, no matter what you're doing, to make sure that you can get these things in.
1: Absolutely. And there's a joke about um, a guy who learned meditation, goes to his meditation instructor and he says, you know, sir, I don't have, I can't find the 40 minutes a day to meditate. And the instructor says, oh, for you, you must meditate for one hour. And so the idea is, is it's work smarter, not, you know, not harder. And I think uh, that is what I do. But, you know, I was just talking to a buddy because gratitude, um, having gratitude practices, literally waking up every morning and saying, you know, this is what I'm grateful for. I have a buddy who does it in between reps at the gym. You know, so there are ways to be creative. If you're taking the bus or you're on a train or you're using public transport or you're going on a plane, you know, you could meditate there. You could read there. You could write there. So I think to me, it's like reflecting on your life and saying, here are the five things that I'm not going to negotiate. These are going to be part of my life every day. And Then figuring out creatively, which is the kind of fun part of problem solving, how do I inject these into my life? And you know, with the institute opening in January, uh, one of the things I asked for when I was talking to Ken is like, I have to have a meditation space in there. And for me, you know, whether the people I work with who often will ask if they can learn meditation is it's meaningful to me that it's in there and it reminds me. And it's like twice a day, I'm gonna be in those chairs and I'm gonna do what I need to do. And I think um, that's what I realized is if I start to compromise on the things that are most important to me, then everyone pays the price because I'm not who I need to be, you know, for anyone.
0: Do you compromise on sleep?
1: I was told it's interesting because uh, I was told that that's the one thing you should never compromise Which, on. Which from
0: what you said, I suspect <laughs> perhaps you do early in the morning.
1: Occasionally when I'm, I'm taking some of these crazy early flights, I might. Um, I'd also say from, from my senior year of college for 10 years, I slept about an hour a night. I had massive, massive insomnia. And so the joy for me of like getting, and I'm not sure what my perfect sleep number is, six hours, seven hours. I just, it's a joy that I can actually go to sleep. And so um, I try to make sure I go to bed at the same time, you know, 10, 1030, and then wake up around 536 every day. So I get a good amount of sleep. And then, you know, if I get up early, then I'll just sleep on the plane or whatever it might be.
0: And you're clearly sleeping a lot better now than when you were having your problems. Yeah,
1: and and that's like when we talk about like mental health, you know, so you go into the doctor and you say, I'm not sleeping. And the doctor says, here's sleep pills. And it's like, well, that's odd, you know, because it's like, why aren't you sleeping well? Because I happen to believe sleep is an outcome of wellness. And so, yes, you can have blackout curtains and take all this and have a ritual and not have a TV in your bedroom and yada, yada, yada. And if every time you lay down, The anxiety starts running. Your eyes pop open, and all you're doing is is worrying about tomorrow or what happened today. Uh, That's why you're not sleeping. It's not because you're you have light in your room. And I think that to me is is like the missing part. And and you know when I was uh, I wasn't we we weren't yet in marital counseling to get divorced, but I remember going to uh, a a doctor and I was concerned that my wife was depressed. So we talked about it, and how ironic, you know, who is depressed? It was me. I was the person who was depressed, and I'm like, and this is the irony of the kind of situation we get into, which is like about digging deeper and having those conversations. And I think, um, being a stoop and a student in tune with people like Dusty, and that story is, you know, now I can look at someone and be like, oh, you know, that that person's not doing okay. I can see, right? The eyes are the window to the soul. Something's going on, and I can go ask them, like, what's going on? How are you? What do you need? And, and I think that's what I was probably lacking, which is why this is so important to me, that whether it's the book we wrote, the work we do in Virginia and Arizona is because I didn't have it and it almost cost me my life. And so I want to make sure that I spend the rest of my life making sure other people have it, whether that's remotely in a, in a book form or in person. I think that's what drives Ken and I is like, how do we spread the word that that when we go through difficult times, our life is not permanently diminished as a result. And and that's what we believe as a society. There's no question in my mind.
0: About and I think a big part of what you're saying is essentially being at peace with yourself. And it comes into the... You're talking about finances and uh, getting things sorted there. So it just si- simply isn't preying on your mind the, the problems that you potentially have because you haven't figured out your taxes or, or whatever the issue is, or you maybe you need to speak to the manager at the bank to just be at peace with your life. And if that means earning less and spending less, but being content with what you have. That all falls into the lifestyle and, and certainly sleeping well.
1: It does. And it's a reminder, you know, we're constantly bombarded with imagery and things of like all the stuff we need that we don't have. Um, and that sometimes those, those you know, need, wants turns into needs. And I think that that's absolutely right. And I, and I think... The other thing about all the work we've done, and this is what's so interesting when you look at, you know, for us, the story of the the prisoners who were at the Hanoi Hilton uh, in Vietnam for mm. nine months to 10 years, Viktor Frankl, people, it, the consistent theme tends to be people who are imprisoned for kind of political crimes, if you will, is that what they report uh, when they go through the struggle is that all of the stuff isn't actually that important. Yes, okay, granted, you need some money, you need to have a roof over your home and all the rest over your head, but... The point is what we've learned from people who've struggled deeply and come out the other side is the things that matter are the quality and nature of our relationships, or our sense and, and belief in ourselves, the sense of gratitude we have for small and big things, and really this idea about growth and contribution. So what, what post-traumatic growth is about and why we kind of made sure we put that in the institute's name is it's about what actually matters. And you know, I always think about this idea of pre-traumatic growth, which is what if you could learn this stuff before really bad things happen? And, and we've recently been talking to some folks about that idea because it's like, you know, I've, I had to learn the hard way, and I hope other people don't have to and go follow as far as I did, uh, about what actually matters in life. And it's not, you know, the brand name on your sweater and the car you drive. You need a vehicle to get from point A to point B. And it's cool to have nice cars. You know, Ken, we like nice cars. But the point is it's about your priorities. And that, to me, is the major function of, of, of times of struggle and difficulty and loss is that it forces you to reevaluate your priorities about what matters. And that's clearly my story. And uh, it's clearly the story of folks who are in the military. They have a different sense of value on on the intangible versus the tangible.
0: You mentioned your grandmother got to, was it 102 yeah. years old? What did you learn from her?
1: My grandmother, you know, and I say this, she died suddenly at 102. So two weeks before she passed, um, I was with her and I spent a couple of days with her and she had just signed up, and we were debating which classes she was going to sign up for. And the year before she passed, she had uh, just learned meditation. And I learned a lot from her. You know, she she, she taught me a couple of things. And, and one of the things I'm really proud about is being able to put that in the book is, is that, you know, she taught me that, that if you love what you do, you're going to get out of bed every morning and be excited to go do it. And she taught me that if you find the person you're meant to spend your life with, it's like a light bulb comes on every time they walk into a room. And she had these sayings, but what was more interesting is – what was underneath that. And I recorded a conversation I had with her when she was about 98, 99. And my grandfather passed when she was 90. And they were together for 65 years. And I asked her about this idea of love. And she said, you know, um, your grandfather was a wonderful man, a beautiful man. And when he died, I realized that I hadn't been that nice to him. And I resolved that the rest of my life I would be much nicer to people. And for the last 12 years of her life, she was a different person. And, uh, you know, had huge issues with my mom, just normal, like daughter-in-law stuff. No one's ever good enough for, for her son. And by middle of that period, my mom was calling her mom, you know, which was, which is improbable. And the relationship we had, when I struggled, the person I leaned on the most was my grandmother. And she was the one who would guide me. And so I think I saw a profound transformation at the age of 90 to 102 in somebody who became more open, um, and who was willing to learn things and to to engage with life and engage with people in a completely different way, and that continues to boggle my mind. And, and I wanted one thing when I when I went to Cleveland after she passed away, and what I wanted was the the sign up sheet from the classes. And I found it, and I, you know, burst into tears because this is hard. And and I found it. and I'm going to frame it, and for the rest of my life, that's my reminder that you, you you live until you don't. And and she lived, and then one day she she didn't. And I think that's my hope. Uh, and I know, you know whether it's it's dementia or cognitive issues or other things that come with age and physical ailments and things like that. She suffered from from the non from the physical ones, but not the cognitive ones. Um, but I think that's what she taught me. She taught me that, and she taught me that it's not the number of years you live, but the quality of the time you have. and And I think arguably for her, the last twelve years were more meaningful than the prior ninety. and And that's amazing too, is is this idea that you're never you never reach a point where, you don't have the opportunity to change, and and Benjamin Button, which is that movie where it like kind of goes in reverse. There's a quote from that movie when he says, "Never, you're never too old late. Uh, you're never too old or too young to change." So so that's what she, ta- she taught me a lot. She taught me a lot, and and I'm uh, and on the one hand I miss her, and on the other hand I just close my eyes and you know I can hear her. and I, I recorded her talking about stuff, which is uh, a wonderful thing as well to have that wisdom for life. So.
0: Well, that's the way to go, isn't it? 102 years old after living a fulfilling, meaningful life. I mean, that is, uh, for, if you wanted to encapsulate what this podcast is all about, it is living a long, healthy, fruitful, purposeful life. And then hopefully, and I say that honestly, hopefully dying actually quite quickly at a great age.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and it's exactly, and it's ideal. And people, you know, when she passed, and it was, uh, the rabbi was wonderful because he said, you know, people are going to say things that seem insensitive, like, you know, she lived so long and all the rest of it. And I'm like, this is pretty fresh. And And that's why I kind of made a point when I did the eulogy, and I was like, my grandmother died suddenly at 102. She was almost 103. And I think that, to your point, would be ideal. And and the flip side of that, which I understand the podcast is designed to to be about a long life. I would like to live a long life. I feel good about my genes. I have a fighting chance. My my grandmother's great-grandmother lived to 110, which in the old country, which is pretty amazing. You do have the genes Um, then? Yeah. So – I just don't want to screw them up. But that, you know, Martin Luther King said not long before he was assassinated, because I think he had a sense of what was happening, that, you know, he would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but he wasn't worried about that now and that he had been to the mountaintop. And I think that, you know, the hope is in life. We have these peak experiences. We have these moments. We have this sense of aliveness. And and I see it. My father's 70 years old. It's my grandmother's son and he works full time. He's up at four o'clock in the morning, exercises for two day, two hours, you know, like I joke, my dad's going to be like, you know, 125, like it's, we're going to have to, we're going to have some problems. But I think that's, that's my hope for folks is that,
0: um, and, the yourself? Opportunity,
1: and myself and myself and, and the opportunity to live uh, meaningfully, however long, because that's the one thing we're not promised. We can take care of ourselves and things still happen. And, and I think all you can ask for is that you, you really have the opportunity to figure out what was meaningful. And, you know, the other thing that was striking, I met with a, a person recently who, who had done some work in hospice centers. And, um, you know, they ask you some pretty profound questions in a hospice center about if you lived your life's purpose, if you found fulfillment, and these sorts of things. And I thought, well, that's sad, right? I mean, like, what are you going to do when you're in the hospice center if the answer is I don't know and or no? And so to me, when I, when I, especially when we're talking to folks who are struggling at, at whatever age, it's like today is the moment. To start to explore the answer to those questions because when all is said and done, those are the ones that will determine the impact you had on, on others and the life you lived and your sense of contentment with with life. And I think that's the other part of what we've tried to do when we, like, write the book and ask these questions. It's like if you can figure those out, no matter what age you are, it's like, okay, I had the chance to – to live a meaningful life. And I figured it out. At least the best of my abilities, I figured it out.
0: So if there is something I'm striving for is that people can figure it out at an earlier age. And I'm curious as to whether your grandmother, who you say kind of figured it out in the last 10 years, to some extent, in terms of how she dealt with people. Did she ever express a wish that she had figured it out earlier in life?
1: She did. And I think that was implicit in, you know, that relationship with um, my grandfather was really profound to her. So they uh, founded a chain of supermarkets back in the day. They worked 16 to 18 hours um, every day together, side by side. And I think, you know, what I heard in that was a regret that um, she hadn't been kinder, perhaps, and more supportive to him. Um, And I think that that that, that was one piece. The other piece is my grandfather said you know, and told her, like, never look back. You know, and that was the other thing she talked about. And I think you know, I'm, I'm of two minds because one of the things in the book we talk about is you know, what we know from a physiological health and a mental health perspective is a lot of the seeds for struggle are planted when we're children. And that makes sense because we're very, very uh, easy to influence and trainable at that age. And that's what we see with a lot of the combat veterans is that when we talk about where the struggle is, you assume the battlefield. It's not true. Uh, what we see is it's before folks join the military. Um, so I, I don't want to go whole hog on the don't ever look back because I think it's important to understand our origins. Uh, and at the same time, um, I'm not sure regrets go, you know, do do that well. But I, the, the part that she could be proud of is she lived long enough to build those relationships meaningfully with my mom, with my brother and I, uh, with my cousins that, you know, she had the chance to – had spent so long focused on the professional side of things that she got to be warm and softer – Uh, and more vulnerable, I think, with the people she really cared about, which is what I think the last chapter of her life was about.
0: I think looking back has a value in terms of learning from mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you ignore those at your peril, because if you don't take heed, maybe you just continue making the same mistakes.
1: And there's the sort of uh, philosophical or spiritual idea that you'll get the same test until you pass it. And so, so if you don't look back, if you're not reflective, if you're not introspective, then you're going to keep, you know, finding yourself dealing with the same type of personality or the same type of challenge. It just – life has a way of working itself out that way that you need to to be a learning machine, like a growing machine. And I think, you know, that's what you would ask if my dad, when he did the eulogy for my grandmother, he had offered kind of these four – uh, epochs are the four eras of her life and that through each of them there was growth and there was change and there was evolution up until the last one when it really became about relationships and connection and legacy and she was fortunate enough to have that longevity when we're not all guaranteed it the question is you know why wait right there's no time like the present there's a you know i paraphrase a quote from a movie it's like when you know how you want to spend the rest of your life you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible and i think that would be my hope is, you know, I'm almost 40, so I feel blessed in some ways that I know what I'm going to do the rest of my life, more or less. And I feel like the Institute is the platform to do that. And and I'm okay with that. You know, you kind of always wish it was it was younger, but I'm not sure I could have had the maturity to do that. But I do think that there's no time like the present to start to be reflective and considering how you grow and evolve into the person that you're supposed to be. And we're I don't know that we ever finish that journey. You know, it gets interrupted at some point by, you know, something – that we're not in charge of.
0: So yeah, exactly. As I say, stuff happens, and, yeah. and and we learn to deal with it. But you strike me as being in a very good place now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had a moment in um, 2012 at Thanksgiving when we did a normal family tradition of going around the table and sharing what you're grateful for, and it was the day before I was moving out of my home and like three weeks before the divorce was final, and I passed. I, I I had my best friend and his wife and their little boy flew in from England. Uh, My brother and his wife were there. My parents were there. There was food. It was a beautiful home, and I had nothing. I couldn't see anything, and I wake up every morning, and wherever I am in the world or country, and I think, I can't believe I get to wake up again. I can't believe I get to do this, and gratitude kind of pours out of me, as does passion, and I think uh, for me... Uh, this has, you know, been the greatest blessing of my life. And so, like, to say that, um, you know, and we still we still experience things. We still experience loss and, and struggle. A very close friend of mine's son took his life at 17, you know, and I think the the thing I can say there is at least I can be of value. At least I can offer something to him to be able to, to deal with that in some meaningful way. And I think that that's um, the, been the amazing part of my life is actually figuring out how much strength I possessed and seeing what's possible when I unlock my talents in a way where they're targeted at something I feel really purposeful about. Uh, So yeah, I mean, life is, I know they have those sort of sarcastic uh, shirts that say living the dream, but that's true. Like I, I I mean, whenever, wherever I am is exactly where I want to be. And and I just got done with a program with uh, four veterans and two spouses in Arizona. I'll be flying back tonight and I'll, tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I'll be with uh, eight folks who are from Texas and Florida who are veterans who are going to be delivering our program in Texas and Florida. So it's like, this is just, it feels like, I don't know if it's a yellow brick road, but Mm -hmm. it's like a beautiful path.
0: it is a beautiful path, and it's been a real pleasure to meet you and to, to hear your story. If anyone listening wants to find out more about your work and uh, perhaps get involved with what you do, um, what should they do?
1: So I would uh, say two things. So our, our book called Struggle Well, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma comes out on May 1st. Uh, you can order pre-order it on the Kindle now on Amazon, uh, and then it'll be live on, on May 1st. And the second is Boulder, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, Crest Retreat. BoulderCrestRetreat.org is our website. If you want to learn more about what we're up to, uh, support support our efforts and work with combat veterans and their families and first responders. We would we would love it. And 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 my wish for for everybody is is to have the opportunity to not just live long but live well and live meaningfully, uh, and remember that the most important things in life are the ones you can't
0: see. Totally, with Josh Gilbert. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And those details that you mentioned, I will put them into the show notes for this episode and you'll find those at the Live Long and Master Aging website, llamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. The site is constantly evolving. There's new information there. There's a complete back catalogue of our interviews and as i often say if you're listening on a platform where you can leave a review like apple podcasts or stitcher five-star review will be hugely appreciated if you think we deserve it it helps us to grow the podcast and to secure its future many thanks for listening